0: The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. Um, thank you, Anthony. <laughs> Appreciate you all being here. I want to talk to you this morning about the dangers within preterism. Now, if you have listened to me for any length of time, you know that I think it's important for believers to read their Bibles. I'm constantly pushing you, I'm constantly encouraging you to read your Bible, to read through that Bible every year. I really believe that understanding the Bible starts by reading it over and over and over. Now, as we read our Bibles, we're going to begin to develop our theology. And theology comes from the word theos, which means God, and logos, which means word or doctrine. So theology could be defined in the narrow sense as the doctrine, the teaching of God. And if you're going to know God, you need to know theology. Now, some uninformed believer is bound to say, Why do I need to know theology? All I need to know is Jesus. And my reply would be, who is Yeshua? And as soon as we start discussing that, guess what we're doing? We're discussing theology. We're involved in theology. We're discussing who who is He? Now, no Christian can avoid theology. Every Christian, I think, is to be a theologian. And the theology we hold needs to come from a careful exegesis of the Scripture. It's my conviction every Christian, every believer should be a theologian. They should know and understand theology. But we have a problem today. The church is so busy entertaining and trying to draw crowds that it's forsaken teaching. We're producing a generation of Christians who don't know theology. Christians can tell you every sports figure and all their stats. They can tell you the latest gossip on every movie star and what movie they played in and all the shows they do, but they don't know much at all about their God. R.C. Sproul, in his book, Knowing Scripture, makes this sad yet insightful statement. He says, if you have read the whole Bible, you are in a small minority of Christian people. And hopefully, friends, you are all in that small minority. It's very important. Now, he says, if you studied the Bible, you're in an even smaller minority. He says, isn't it amazing that almost every American has an opinion to offer about the Bible, and yet so few have ever really studied it? I would go so far as to say, and yet so few have ever even read it. Most people have never, most Christians have never read their Bible. And yet, like he says, everybody's got an opinion. Now, as believers, we need to be constantly reading and studying our Bibles. And as we do that, we're going to develop our doctrinal foundations. Notice what Paul told Timothy. He said, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now, Paul tells Timothy, watch your life, Timothy. Watch your teaching. Teaching here is from the Greek word didaskalia. It means doctrine. In doing this, he says, you will not only save yourself, but you'll save those who hear you. Now, the word save here is sozo. And it's not used here in the sense of, you know, you're going to gain eternal life. That's not what he's talking about here. The normal use of this word save is deliver." And that's what he's talking about here. You will deliver yourselves and you'll deliver your others from your doctrine. Well, what will he deliver them from? Well, if you go back to the very beginning of the chapter, he says, now the Spirit expressly says, in the latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons. So we can see that the word save here means to deliver in this context, to deliver from the effects of false teachers. Stay in your doctrine. Teach correct doctrine. You will deliver people by delivering correct doctrine. So your doctrine that you hold, your theology is very important. Now as you learn the Bible and you begin to put your theology together, you're going to realize there's a lot of different areas of theology. Uh, In systematic theology, there are many different doctrines. For example, you have theology proper. And that is... Dealing with the existence and the attributes of God. Okay? Arguing for his existence, arguing over his attributes. And then another area of theology would be anthropology. What's that about? That's the doctrine of man, the study of man. All right, then we have Christology. I think you can get that one right. That's the study, the doctrines of Christ. Soteriology. You want to take a guess at that? Salvation. That's dealing with the doctrines of salvation. And then we'd have ecclesiology. What's that one about? The doctrine of the church. Okay? Ecclesiology. Y'all should get this one right. Eschatology. All right? It's the doctrine of end times. Okay? And then bibliology. I think you could probably guess that one right. The study of the Bible. All right? Now, how about this one? Pneumatology. (laughs) Pneuma. Spirit, okay? The doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Alright? So we have all these doctrines. Now let me ask you this. Do all these areas of theology carry the same level of importance? What would you say would be the most important doctrine? Well, I guess we'd have to start with theology proper, wouldn't we? I mean, the study of God, wouldn't that be the most significant and then along with that we put Christology because Yeshua is God, so that would go together. And in my opinion next would come soteriology. All right, the doctrine of salvation. How is a man saved? I mean when when you study your God and you understand who God is, who Christ is, you want to how do we become saved? How do we get to spend eternity with our God? And I think that the danger within preterism is that people have elevated it to prime importance. Preterism is an eschatology, but it has taken over, okay, as far as people's theology. It's one of many eschatologies. You know, there's a lot of them out there. Dispensationalism. you got, you got know, pre, post, mid, trib, all these different you know, eschatologies. But people have elevated this to this huge point that that seems to be all that matters to them. Preterism is not a denomination, but it seems to have become that. It's become a denomination where the only doctrine that matters is eschatology. Now to me, the dangers within preterism is that many have put it above other doctrines. And I think this is wrong. To put this above soteriology or Christology, or theology proper, that is just wrong, okay? Preterism is a system of eschatology that views the end times as taking place in the first century. Preterism is the teaching that the big three, this is my interpretation, this is how I would declare somebody is a full preterist, all right? A preterist believes that the judgment, the resurrection, the second coming all took place in the first century in A.D. 70. And the thing that signaled this was the destruction of Jerusalem. Preterism takes the time statements in the Bible at face value and believes that Yeshua returned in the first century generation just as He said He would. Now listen, I am a full preterist. Have been for 22 years. And the longer I study my Bible, the more convinced I am that preterism is true. I think that preterism is an eschatology of hope, it's an eschatology of victory, and I believe that a correct hermeneutic would lead you to preterism. See, one of the principles of hermeneutics is called audience relevance. And audience relevance, this is just so basic, but we miss this, you know, so often, Audience Relevance seeks to discover what the original readers understood a passage to mean. I mean, that's basic. What did it mean to the people to whom it was written? So the concern of the interpreter is to understand the grammar of a passage in light of the historical circumstances and the context of the original audience. Now, a couple weeks ago, a man called me who saw us online, and he asked me, he goes, do you think that Revelation 18 is dealing with America? And I said, no, not at all. And he was just kind of quiet. You don't think that, and I'm, no, I don't at all. And I asked him this, I said, let me ask you something, who was the book of Revelation written to? And there was silence. Who was it written to? I said, let's look at the book, because the book tells us who it's written to. The very first verse, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. Okay, so John's writing to these seven local churches in Asia in the first century, and he names them in verse 11. He says, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. Okay, so we have the book written to seven churches in Asia, seven real churches. Now, by churches, I don't mean buildings that are on the corner. He's writing to called-out believers, all right, the called-out ones. So this book is written to these different groups of believers who lived in Asia Minor in the first century. That's who he's writing to. He wrote this book 2,000 years ago. None of you were alive back then. None of this is written to you. Okay, now notice what he says in the very first verse. The revelation of Yeshua the Christ which God gave him to show his servants the things which must soon take place. Okay, seven real churches, real people, and he says the things I'm writing, this whole book, everything I'm about to write you is soon to take place. It means soon to them. Okay? There's a guy that goes to my gym. He's got a t-shirt he wears all the time. It says, coming soon. And in the back it says, Jesus. And I so want to go talk to him. (laughs) I haven't done it yet. But I want to say, he's coming soon? Soon to who? Well, he said that 2,000 years ago. So how is it still soon when it was soon 2,000 years ago? Look at verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of the prophecy, and blessed are those who hear, who keep... What is written, watch, for the time is near. What time is near? The time for the, the events in this book to take place. The time was near for all the servants in, in this book, to everything he's laid out here, these events to take place. It was near, it was soon to them in the first century, the people he was writing. Now, the book of Revelation ends with these same time statements that it began with. So the time statements bracket the book, and all the events that are take place, including chapter 18, are to take place soon to a first century audience. The last chapter of the book. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants which must soon take place. That's verse one says that same exact thing. He's showing his servants the thing that will soon. So we got soon at the beginning, we got soon at the end, and everything in the middle is 2,000 years later. No! Soon. Soon to take place. And behold, I'm coming soon. Verse 10, the time is near. Verse 12, I'm coming soon. Verse 20, I am coming soon. So, five times in the last 16 verses, he tells the seven churches that everything He had just written to them is happening soon. How in the world could this have any relevance to us today? How are we looking for these events to happen today? In Revelation 1.1, John specifically states that the prophecies of Revelation would begin to take place in a short time, right? He emphasized this truth in a variety of ways through language, he carefully varies the different words he uses to avoid any confusion. The Greek word translated shortly in Revelation 1.1 is tachos. According to Art and Gingrich, lexicon, tachos is used in the Septuagint and in certain non-canonical writings to mean speed, quickness, swiftness, haste. John uses the same word in Revelation 2.16, 3.11, 6 7, 12, and 20. He also uses the Greek word "engus," which speaks of temporal nearness. It's translated at hand in Revelation 1.3 and 22.10. This term speaks of a temporal nearness, and John uses this term to bracket the book. Okay, this is at hand. The third Greek word he uses is mellow, which is translated about to in Revelation 1.19 and 3.10. The phrase in one ten, it says those that are to take place after this is literally those things which are about to occur. Again, the audience is a first century audience. The things that are about to occur. And in 3.10, he says that is coming on the whole world is literally that is about to come upon the whole world. Now, if we apply the principle of audience relevance, what would the original readers have thought as they read this? John strategically places these words at the introduction and the conclusion of the book. He's telling the seven churches to expect these things at any moment. They're not future. To us, they're ancient history. Let me just give you one outside of the book of Revelation. Let's look at Hebrews 10.37. This is really complicated here. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. Now, the Greek here is very expressive and emphatic. The author used a word which signifies a little while. And then for further emphasis, he added a particle meaning very. And this he further intensifies intensifies by repeating it. Thus, literally rendered, this clause would read, For yet a very, very little while, and he that shall come will come. The idea the author wishes to convey is evidently that the time of their deliverance from the trials was not far remote. The reference is undoubtedly to the second coming of Christ. If this is a reference to the second coming of Christ and He has not come as most Christians think He has not, what did it mean to the people to whom it was written? Nothing. Nothing at all. What does it mean to us? Can we understand for yet a very, very little while and He shall, who will come will come to mean over 2,000 years? If the Lord didn't return in the first century, this would have meant nothing to the Hebrews. To tell you the truth, it would have been deceptive to them. God inspired the author of Hebrews to write this at around AD 65. To the first century saints. we Yet a very, very little while and he that shall come will come. How could he have made it clear that the second coming of Christ was going to happen soon to them? See, most Christians would say the Lord has not yet returned making the writer of Hebrews a false prophet. But the problem wasn't just that the writer of Hebrews said this. Yeshua taught the same exact thing himself. Which makes Yeshua a false prophet. Okay, so preterism is an eschatology. And in my opinion, it is a correct, the only correct eschatology that there is. It's true to the principles of hermeneutics. But, there's always a but, okay? It's getting to the point that I don't want to associate with the term preterist. My eschatology is definitely a fulfilled eschatology, But there are some within the movement that give it a very bad name. You know, someone's studying their Bible and all of a sudden they realize eschatology. They realize the Lord returned. And so they go online and they start looking up preterism. Oh my word. The stuff they're going to come across is crazy. And a lot of people are like, whoa, they're afraid because they see all the wackos that have gathered around the term and it scares them. And when these people hold some unbiblical views and yet call themselves preterists, I don't want to associate with that. I don't want people to think, well, (coughs) you're a preterist. You must believe this, this, and this. Not at all. Not at all. The danger within preterism comes from the fact that preterism has become an umbrella under which a lot of false doctrines are gathering. It's an eschatology, it's one branch of theology, but everybody seems to, you know, if, hey, if you get under this umbrella, everything's good, alright, and under it we have the Israel only doctrine. We have baptismal regeneration. You want to get saved, get wet, okay? We've got Unitarianism, we've got Universalism, and we've got Charismatics, And because they say they're preterist, I think they discredit the eschatological view by their doctrinal errors. So I think we need to be careful about embracing someone just because they say their eschatology is preterist. Okay? And that's what's happening. You're a preterist, I'm a preterist, yay, we're all one big happy family. No, we are not. We can't line up and associate with people based strictly on their eschatology. There are other doctrines that are much more important. I think it's great that people are coming to see this is true. I think it's hard to miss it's true once your eyes are open to the Bible. But everybody's jumping on board. Barry Bennett writes in an article entitled, The Dangers of Preterism, Part 2, Preterism is the theological platform from which any aberrant doctrine can grow. I think that's true. That's happening. All one has to do is point to AD 70 and declare that things are different now. That's a pretty profound statement because I see that happening. Everybody says, well, AD 70, it's, we're after AD 70, everything's changed. Really? Everything? No, not everything. He says the startling reality is that this teaching... The cross of Christ takes second place to the destruction of Jerusalem. See, I agree with them, and that's what scares me, okay? That's what scares me. People are walking away from what's important. You know, soteriology, the doctrine of Christ. Oh, well, we Forget about those. We, we believe the Lord returned. And the question is, who is the Lord who did return? You seem to be confused on that. So let's look at some of these false doctrines that are gathering under the umbrella of preterism, see you know, why they are dangerous, what, it was, what is about them that causing this danger. Universalism is a big one. Okay? There's a big movement of universalism among preterism. This is the teaching that God, through the atonement of Yeshua, will ultimately bring reconciliation between himself and all people throughout history. Everybody gets saved. This is just like the pagan doctrine, because you know any pagans that think they're dying, they're actually going to hell or something. No, they everybody. You know, we were talking. Claire and I were talking about obituaries this morning. You know, do you ever read an obituary? This guy was a rotten, low down scoundrel. But you know, it's glad we're glad he's dead. You ever read that? No, because no matter how rotten he was, we make him sound great. You know, when he's dead now, we can talk nice about him. No, you know. Well, Universalist teaches this reconciliation will occur regardless of whether they have trusted in or rejected Yeshua as Savior during your lifetime. So in other words, it doesn't matter what you believe. You don't have to believe. You don't have to trust Christ. You're, just, you're okay. Everybody gets to go to heaven. Former Mars Hill pastor Rob Bell. You all ever heard of Rob Bell? He ignited a theological controversy over Universalism with, with his book entitled, Love Wins. Now, how can you how can you lose with a book called Love Wins, right? The gist of Bell's book is this. Every sinner will turn to God and realize he has already been reconciled to God in this life or in the next. In the end, he says, love wins. So the basic presupposition of universalism is that God's nature is love, and so God loves everybody, right? Now... Here's the thing, I see universalism as the logical outcome of Arminianism, because what does Arminianism believe? God loves everybody. Now, most Arminians are not universalists, but I think it's a logical conclusion. If God loves everybody, He would save them, right? See, a Calvinist knows God doesn't love everybody. If He loves them, it makes sense, He saves them. The Universalists go through all the Scriptures and they pull out all the verses where it says all and world and they attempt to stick this into Everybody's getting saved. A Universalist writes this, Belief is not a requirement to be returned back to God in the Spirit when you die. You don't have to believe. Belief is the thing that gives us joy right now. So it's not nothing to do with eternity. It just makes you happy if you know that you're saved, Right? that has been accomplished, and that the works of the devil have been undone, and that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Listen, the Bible doesn't say that those who believe will have joy. Joy is a product of fellowship with the Lord. But it says those who believe will have eternal life. To not believe is to not have eternal life. He who is believing in the Son hath life, age, during. You believe in the Son, you have everlasting life. But watch. He who is not believing the Son shall not see life. Is that clear? That's hard to understand. The Scripture from beginning to end proclaims the necessity of faith. Apart from faith in Christ, men will perish. Eternal life is only for believers. Romans 8.1 There is then now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Yeshua. Now listen. The no condemnation here refers to spiritual death. That's the condemnation. You receive spiritual death. All are condemned in Adam, but those in Christ, those who believe in Christ, are not condemned. If Paul was a universalist, he would have said, there is therefore now no condemnation to anyone. That's not what he said, though. That's not what he said. It's to those who are in Christ. Those who believe in Christ are not condemned. It's only those who believe that do not perish. All who do not believe in Him are going to perish. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But, whoever does not believe is condemned already. See, the unbeliever is condemned. The unbeliever is under the wrath of God. John 8.24, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, you'll die in your sins. There's only one thing that prevents you from dying in your sin and being damned forever, and that's belief in Christ. That's it. See, I see universalism as an attack on the Gospel. Over and over, the Bible calls on men to believe on the Lord, Yeshua the Christ, for salvation. But universalism says, you don't need to believe. Everybody's going to get saved. Everybody. Bereans, just because somebody holds a correct doctrine of eschatology, just because they believe the Lord returned in AD 70, does not make them our brother. Much more important than the doctrine of eschatology is the doctrine of soteriology, the doctrine of Christology. How is a person saved? What do they believe about Christ? And the Bible teaches we are saved by faith. Galatians 3.22 But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Yeshua the Christ might be given to those who believe. The promise is the covenant promise to Abraham and it only comes to the ones who believe. In John 10, he's talking about his sheep. He says, you don't believe. Why don't they believe? Because you're not my sheep. So there's some people here who Yeshua is saying don't believe. Because they're not his sheep. Now watch what he says about my sheep. Hear my voice. I know them. I give them eternal life. And they don't perish. So his sheep don't perish. Because they believe. But the others who do not believe are not his sheep. And they perish. There's sheep. And there's goats. Some believe. Many do not. So under this umbrella we got universalism. And then we have this doctrine called Israel only. All right. And this is another doctrinal error that gathers under the umbrella. And the thing is, if you go into a lot of these preterist groups online, you got the universalists, you got the Israel, you got all these people in those groups arguing, trying to tell people, you know, their way is the right way. Those who hold this false teaching say that the term Gentile refers only to the 10 northern tribes of Israel. And thus the Bible is written solely and entirely to the nation Israel and therefore it has nothing in it for us. Nothing. So there's people online arguing from the Bible that the Bible means nothing to us. Anything wrong with that picture? Huh? They believe that everything ended in AD 70. Everything. Which includes salvation ended. Nobody's saved since AD 70. Sin ended. Spiritual death. The church. The law. If you believe this is true, why would you even bother with the Bible? I mean, once you learned from studying that none of this had anything to do with you at all, including salvation, why wouldn't you just throw it out and go on with your miserable life? And I'm not trying to be mean by saying that, but if you don't believe the Bible has anything to say to you about salvation, you got a miserable life. Okay? I believe that Yahweh has always had a plan for Gentiles. Listen, folks, it all started with Gentiles. I got news for you. Adam and Eve were not part of Israel, they were Gentiles. Okay? And we never had anything about Israel until chapter 12. When God got done with the Gentiles, he was so sick of them disobeying him. He goes, I'm tired of you. I'm getting rid of all of you. I'm turning you all over to these false gods to rule over you. I'm going to start all over. Let me see. I'm taking Abraham. I'm creating a whole new people. And he chose Abraham. And as soon as he chose Abraham, he said, Abraham, you're going to be a blessing to all nations. Wow, I'm calling some, but I'm not forgetting these people. I'm going to get them back. I'm going to get them back. All right? So God loves Gentiles. I believe he saves Gentiles. And I believe the Bible is the living word of God that applies to us today. Now, the people from Israel only are right when they say that the terms nations or Gentiles, is used of the northern kingdom of Israel. See, basically what they say, you know, the kingdom of Israel split. you got the northern tribe, ten northern tribes, and the southern tribes. They say the northern tribes are the Gentiles. Okay? Because God said in Amos, you're not my people. All right? So they were assimilated into the Gentiles. So that's true. That term does fit there. But it's not exclusive of them. The Greek term ethnos can be used of the ten northern tribes, they are called goi, they are called ethnos, but these terms are not exclusive to the ten northern tribes. For example, in Mark 10.33, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the ethnos. Well, this is not the ten northern tribes. This is the Romans, who are non-Israelites, okay? Okay? Acts 4.27, truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Yeshua, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. So here Gentiles is a distinct group from Israel. Here Ethnos is non-Israelites. Acts 9.15, for Yahweh said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Ethnos and kings and the children of Israel. So Paul was to take the gospel to the nations and to the sons of Israel. So sometimes nations is used of the nation Israel. The whole nation, nations is used of it. Sometimes it's used of the dispersed northern tribes. Sometimes it's used for non-Israelites. And sometimes it's used for everybody. If you go back to the book of Ephesians, I did two messages on who are the Gentiles. where we covered all this. So it's two hours of my defense on who the Gentiles are. So if you've got interest in that, go back and read that. The meaning of ethnos has to be determined by the context, which means we've got to do our homework, we've got to figure out how it's used, but it's not strictly used of the ten northern tribes, as the I.O. people want to tell you. The body of Christ is made up of regathered twelve tribes of Israel and many non-Israelites who have been called by Yahweh and have trusted in Christ. The term Gentiles is far more expansive than the I.O. people want to claim that it is. Now, those who hold to this I.O. false doctrine are cessationists, all right? They believe everything ended in 8070. But listen, there's also some people who are not I.O., Israel only, but they're cessationists to the point it all ended in 8070. Church, there's no church today, there's no sin today. You know, I'm like, what? Everything ended. They take the principle of audience relevance to a place where none of the Bible applies to us today. See, they're saying the Bible is written solely and entirely to the nation Israel. They're accusing us of using audience relevance only for the time statements. And what they mean is that to them, the Bible is relevant, not relevant at all to today's audience. Well, let's talk about audience relevance. We already mentioned it here, but it's one of the rules of hermeneutics, audience relevance. It means that whatever a passage meant, whatever the words spoken in Scripture meant, it had direct application to the original audience. Doesn't that make sense if you write something to somebody? It had to mean something to the people you wrote it to. Now listen, let's talk about audience relevance for a minute, because this is important to understand, because I think most people miss this. This means there's not one book in the Bible that was written to anybody living today. People read the Bible like it's a newspaper, like just got dropped on their doorstep. Oh, Look at this, this is to me. Look what it says. Where in the Bible does it say to the church in Virginia Beach? Any of you guys in the church in Asia Minor or in your church at Galatia? Or are you a Philippian? Or are you a Colossian? Are you a Roman? No, these books were written 2,000 years ago. Every single book in the Bible, listen, was written for us, but not to us. Alright? Every book in the Bible is a personal letter. It's a history book, or it's a writing by a prophet to a particular people at a particular time for a particular reason. It doesn't matter what a particular text means to you. I get so frustrated when people say, you know what this means to me? I say, who cares? Who cares what it means to you? And that's what we have today in our culture. Well, my truth is, there's not your truth, there's only truth. You don't have your own truth. It doesn't matter what a text means to you. What matters is, what did it mean to the people to whom it was written? That's the first thing we have to figure out. What did it mean to them? And then once we understand what it means to them, then we can say, well, does it apply to us? Because I think there's plenty of, plenty of principles in the Bible that apply to us. See, those who hold to the IO or many cessationists will say that none of the Bible was written to us, so none of it applies to us. I don't think that's true. We could look at a text like we could go to the book of Philippians. In Philippians 2:19, Paul t- talks about Timothy and he says, "I'm going to send he's talking to the Philippians." And he says, "I'm going to ten- send Timothy to you shortly." It's a great verse. I love it because I always show it to people. I say, Are you looking forward to Timothy coming? They look at you like you're on drugs. Pull out the same verse that says Yeshua's coming shortly. Oh, yeah, I can't wait. Wait, wait a minute. How come he's coming shortly you're looking for? Timothy coming shortly you're not looking for? Timothy's dead. That was 2,000 years ago. Oh, you're catching on. Let's apply that across the whole board here, right? So I don't know. I've never met a Christian that's looking for the coming of Timothy. All right. They know, they understand that. That doesn't apply to us. Timothy's dead. It's been 2,000 years since Paul wrote that. Okay, well, let's try another one. What about this verse? Philippians 4, 2, and 3. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. In other words, ladies, quit the bickering in the church. You know these, anybody know these ladies? Yodia and Syntyche? Is, is this for us Well, No, Yodia and Syntyche are dead. Clement is dead, okay? This was very specific to the local situation. Aren't you glad the Bible's done being written? How'd you like to read the letter? Hey, uh, you people in Berean Bible Church straighten. You know, I don't want to be called out from the Scriptures. Okay? But you know, what we might apply from this text is the principle of unity, right? He's telling listen, you guys need to get together. There needs to be unity. That's taught in the whole New Testament. So, I mean, unity is an important principle taught in the Bible. That applies to us. What about this verse? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Does that apply to us? Paul's talking about himself. But could this apply to us if we're in Christ? Can we, you and I, today, do all things through Christ? Well, if you understand what it means, you can. This doesn't mean you can leap tall buildings at a single bound. It doesn't mean you can run faster than a locomotive or out run a speeding bullet. That's not what he's talking about. Again, context, all right? People pull this verse out of context. and Yeah, I can do all things. Really? Let me see you jump off this building. No, you can't do that. That's not what he's talking about. The context here, I remember. I, this used to be one of my favorite verses. And then when you're studying verse by verse through the Scripture, you're like, wow, I never knew what was sitting in that context. Because look what Paul says before it. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Then he says, I can do all things. In other words, I can suffer through poverty. I can live in abundance, which to me is harder than the poverty. I can do all these things through Christ. Does this apply to us? Yes. If you're in Christ, I think it does. Can you deal with circumstances, whatever God brings to your life, if you're living in fellowship with Christ? Yes, you can. This is a spiritual truth that I think applies to all who live in dependence. I don't think this applies to all Christians. I think it applies to all Christians who are living in dependence on Christ, who are living in fellowship with Christ. I think that's a very important distinction. There's a lot of Christians out there. They can't handle too many things because they're not walking where they need to be walking. All right, but I yes, this applies to us. We can do all things through Christ. We can deal with the circumstances of life when we walk in fellowship with Christ. I don't care what the circumstances bring. Paul fleshed this out, people. This guy didn't have what you would call the health, wealth doctrine. You know, down too well. He was always in jail. He was always getting beat up. He was always getting hurt. You know, by people that didn't like him preaching the gospel. And he said, you know, I can do all things. I can do it. I can deal with whatever life brings me because I'm walking with Christ. And so can we today. And don't let anybody rob you of that by saying the Bible doesn't apply to you. This is written to Philippians. But let me tell you what, Christianity hasn't changed in 2,000 years. It's still true. It's still right. These people who are saying that none of the Bible is written to us so none of it applies to us, they're wrong." They go so far as to say, sin was done away in AD 70. We don't sin anymore. I love that one. I hear it from preterists. You know what that is an excuse for? I can do whatever I want to do, and it's not sin. It's okay. It's It's an excuse for immorality. It's an excuse for immorality. That's what it is. Paul taught that the Gentiles in the church shared the blessing of the Abrahamic covenant with Israel. Now the promise were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It doesn't say and to offspring, plural, referring to many, but referring to one and your offspring who is Christ. So the Abrahamic covenant applied to Abraham and Christ and who else? Everybody in Christ. Right? If you're in Christ, the Abrahamic covenant applies to you. And if you are Christ then you're Abraham's offspring. Okay? You're heirs according to the promise. Because you're in Christ. Now the you here, limited to those in Galatia in the first century, no, not only. If you have faith, if you trusted Christ, then you're the seed of Abraham. Brian Simmons who's writing an article called "What Hyperpreterists Don't Want You to Know"? By hyperpreterist, he means full preterism, which is really only preterism because partial preterism is futurism, right? So, what hyperpreterists don't want you to know, he writes this: the consistent preterist view—that's that's a better term—consistent preterist view holds that salvation was perfectly consummated in AD 70. See, this is—he's writing about a doctrinal error within under the umbrella of preterism because this preterists don't believe this those born after A.D. 70 never needed salvation. For they were never under the Old Covenant. Therefore, if hyperpreterism is true, all men must be saved. No, that's not true at all. We don't teach this. There are people under the umbrella that teach this. But Orthodox preterism doesn't. <laughs> Some people would see that as a contradiction of terms. Orthodox preterism. But we are. One of these cessationists writes, sin and death were related to the law. And that is not the issue for people living today. I was never born in Adam and therefore did not inherit the consequence of his sin nor the death that resulted. Mm. This is a big discussion among predators today. Are people born in Adam today? Men. All mankind were born dead in Adam. Adam was a federal head of the human race. God chose him as the man to represent the human race. When he fell, we fell. People were born dead in Adam before the Old Covenant, during the Old Covenant, after the Old Covenant. And they want to argue, it's no after AD 70. What, where in the Bible does it say the nature of man changed after AD 70? After AD 70, man doesn't need to be saved because now his nature is perfect. He's, good per, he's a good person now. Just look around, people. Just look around. Not, that AD 70 did not change the nature of man. Man still needs the new birth. All right? He still needs salvation or he's going to be damned for all eternity. Christ came to put an end to the sin and the death, and it only affects those people who are in him. Those outside of Christ are still born in Adam, they're still dead in sins. All right, so under this umbrella, we got the universalists, we got the Israel only crowd, we got the baptismal regeneration crowd. This is another doctrinal error that gathers under the umbrella of preterism. Now, baptismal regeneration means that the act of water baptism conducted by a pastor or priest contains regenerative power or life-giving power. You want to get saved, you've got to get wet. Okay. One of the largest religious groups in the world today teaches that unless you are water baptized, you cannot be saved. What is that group? Catholicism. That's the largest one, okay? That's what they teach. If you've ever been to a funeral, we know this person, this dead person, is saved because they were baptized. They put—I never forget going to that Catholic, my first Catholic funeral after being a Christian. I was like, they sprinkled water on them when they were a baby, so they're good to go, okay. Does that make sense to people? It sure does to them. Well, the other prominent group that teaches a very similar heresy is the Church of Christ. All right? They make it clear that unless you're water baptized, you can't possibly be saved. All right? You have to be water baptized. And listen, you have to be water baptized by a Church of Christ minister. And under this umbrella of preterism, there are many who are in the Church of Christ. I mean, this, the preterism is a big movement within the Church of Christ. But, but coming into preterism, they're bringing their doctrinal heresies, and they're saying, you got to get wet to get saved. I talked to a man a couple months ago. He called me from South Carolina, and he was talking to one of these pastors who newly came into the preterist movement from the Church of Christ a couple years ago. And this pastor was talking to him about baptism. Have you been baptized? Well, yeah, I have. Have you been baptized by a church Christ minister? No, well then you're not saved. He told this guy, "I will come down to South Carolina and baptize you so you can be saved." And the guy said, "No thanks, I'll pass." Cuz he's smarter than that. He called me to tell me this, go, "What do you think of this?" I think I think it's just heresy. But see, we're accepting this because oh, they believe in preterism. Their eschatology's right. I don't really care. If their soteriology is that messed up, they right. All you got to do is get somebody wet. Guess what? They get to go to heaven. The ritual of water baptism saves you. Jack Cottrell, in his book, Baptism A Biblical Study, represents the denominational view of the Church of Christ, and he says this. Every Christian has come within the scope of this sin-destroying force of the death of Christ. We have tapped into its lethal power. When did this happen? He's talking about salvation, basically, okay? The, The power of Christ's death. He says, when did we get this? In our baptism. That's when you got it. When you got wet. And that's why a church of Christ, they don't, you know, okay, you got saved. Um, next week we'll schedule a baptism. Or next, no, no. You come to the church right now. They get them... I mean, it is instant. They don't play around. You got saved? Get over here. Get you in the tank. Get you saved. They don't. They don't want to wait till Sunday or you know schedule one a couple times a month. None of that. You got to do it right because it's salvation. So that makes sense if it is salvation. There is absolutely no indication that this union with Christ and His death happened as soon as. We believed or repented. We, we didn't get joined to Christ when we believed. That didn't happen then. We did not believe unto His death. We did not repent unto His death. Paul explicitly says we've been baptized into His death. So they teach at the act of water baptism that a person is born again by getting wet rather than a sovereign act of the Holy Spirit. Now listen, we just finished a study of the Gospel of John. Okay, a couple weeks ago, so it's still fresh in your mind, right? What was John's purpose in writing? That people would believe, right? He says, but these are written, the things he's written, the signs that have happened, so that you may believe. That's why I'm writing. That Yeshua is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. The reason for writing was to bring people to faith in God. I want you to come. I want you to have eternal life. John has a lot to say about belief. He talks about it all through this text. You know how many times John talks about water baptism? Zero. Zip. Nada. Hmm. Wait a minute. Baptism is essential for salvation. John's writing telling us how to be saved, and he leaves out an essential thing for salvation. Does that make any sense? John, you messed up. You wrote a book about salvation and you forgot. You think it just so happens that he doesn't even mention baptism in the book? There's another thing that people think is necessary for salvation. That's repentance. That's another thing John happened to not mention in his book. Hmm. The guy messed up. He wrote a book about salvation and left out all the important things. All he covered was belief. Go figure. I think John might have got it right Salvation is through faith. That's it, people. We don't need to add anything to it. He didn't mention those other things because they're not necessary for salvation. The only book in the Bible specifically written to tell people how to come to faith in Christ and have eternal life, and he doesn't mention an essential element of salvation, getting wet. It's crazy. It's crazy. So under this umbrella, we also have Unitarianism. They would deny the doctrine of the Trinity. This is just another doctrinal error. According to their website, www.unitarian.org, they say this, Unitarians believe that Jesus was a man, unequivocally human. It has long been our view that to talk of Him as God is unfaithful to his own understanding of Himself. While honoring Him, we do not worship Him. Something we believe he would not have wanted. Really? We just finished the Gospel of John. And when he showed up to Thomas, Thomas worshipped him and said, My Lord and my God. Did the Unitarians not read that passage? Did they not even look at that? Yeshua didn't say, Wait a minute, Thomas. Get up. I'm just a man. You you know, don't... That's what John heard plenty of times from angels. Don't worship me. I'm just an angel. Get up. Yeshua didn't say that. Why? Because He's God. And He's worthy of our worship. Look at the Scriptures say. While honoring Him, we don't worship Him. Okay? Well, Yeshua Himself that said, if you don't honor Him, you don't honor the Father. Right? John 5.23 That all may honor the Son... Just as they honor the Father, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. The Father has guaranteed that the Son will receive equal honor with Himself by committing all judgment to Himself. That's what Romans 5 is talking about here. Therefore, failure to honor the Son is failure to honor the Father. You can't honor one. You can't have one without the other. So many people say, I just worship God. I don't know about you. Listen, you can't do that. You can't come to the Father except through the Son. Look what he, Isaiah forty two eight says. I am Yahweh. That's my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. So Yahweh is saying in this text in Isaiah, I'm not going to share my honor with any other people. Alright? So for Him to share His honor with the Son must mean that the Son was equal to Him. What man or what created being could say that we... We should honor Him just as we honor the Father. What man could say that? Listen, Yeshua is claiming to be Yahweh. And anybody like these people who say that He never claimed to be God, they don't have a clue about the Bible. He says it over and over. He says it so many ways, so many times. its I don't know how you could miss it unless you want to miss it. Okay? When you read a Unitarian that says, well, Yeshua never claimed to be God. Oh my word. Yes, He did. Over and over He claimed to be. He does it all through the text in John 5. He insists that He's to be worshipped in the same way Yahweh is. He's to be honored, praised, adored, respected, trusted, obeyed. The same way the Father is. Because He came to represent the Father. To see me is to see the Father. So what are they saying? The Father's just human then? He's just a man? When this Unitarian says, while honoring Him, we do not worship Him. He's not only not honoring the Son, but He's dishonoring the Father. That's a serious thing. When a man says God is God, but Yeshua is only the Son of God, denying His deity, he's dishonoring God. Look at John 8.24. four. We've I tried to stress this verse while we're going through John. This is a verse you got to understand, you got to commit to memory. I told you that you would die in your sins. Now watch what Christ says. Unless you believe that I am, that He is not in that text that was put in there by the translators to make it sound a little smoother. But what Christ is saying is unless you believe that I am, He's saying, you know, this is referring to Yahweh saying I am that I am in Exodus chapter 3. I am that I am. I'm God. So He is claiming to be God. He says, unless you believe that I'm God, you're going to die in your sins. Christ is claiming to be God, the self-existent, eternal God. No one can know the Father that doesn't know the Son. Can't happen. Can't do it. And anyone who denies Christ's deity Does not have the Father. And there's there's many people this includes. All right, listen, it includes Muslims. They deny the deity of Christ. It includes the Jews, right? Do they deny the deity of Christ? Absolutely. But we got preachers telling us, oh, we got to support Israel. Why? They're Christ rejecting God haters. They're not God's people. They turned their back on God. It includes the Mormons, it includes the Jehovah witnesses, it includes the unitarians. They don't believe in the deity of Christ. It's an attack on Christology. Okay? And that's important people. Now listen to me. <clears throat> the preterist eschatology, I think is important. And I think it's being damaged by all these false doctrines gathering under the umbrella. Eschatology is a major issue in the scriptures, okay? R.C. Sproul says that two-thirds of the New Testament is either directly or indirectly eschatological. Other experts say that 25-30% to of the whole Bible is eschatological. Eschatology is important. I think the preterist eschatology affects your worldview. If we were living in the last days, and this world's about to end at any moment, that changes how we live. But we're not living in the last days. We're living in the kingdom of God. And we're to be affecting the world in which we live by the power of God. Because we are kingdom citizens. So I believe that eschatology matters. It's important. But it's not near as important as soteriology, Christology, theology proper. And we need to be careful not to join with those who deny the deity of Christ. Or who deny the the doctrines of salvation. These doctrinal errors attack the gospel of Christ, and we can't stand with these people. Look at Paul's words to Romans in Romans 16. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrines you've been taught. There's people out there going against the doctrines you've been taught, and Paul says this, avoid them. Avoid them. That's how we're to respond to these people who are promoting doctrinal errors. Avoid them. The word avoid here is from the Greek word eklino. It means to turn aside, to shun. It's in the present imperative. Keep on shunning. You can't associate with those people because then people will think that's your doctrine. So Paul says we're to continually mark out and avoid those who cause divisions and offenses. We need to realize the people we have contact with will inevitably influence us in one way or another. Okay? you got to watch the company you keep. That is because God made us interdependent creatures. Okay? The Bible says, He that walks with wise men will be wise, but a companion of fools will suffer harm. Man, I used to bang that into my kids' heads when they were younger. You know, a companion of fools Will suffer harm. And that's true in the spiritual dimension. People, we associate. We hang out with these people then they think we're accepting their doctrine. We are responsible for the influences to which we subject ourselves. God holds us responsible to re- avoid evil influences. Now I know that someone's going to say, well, well, what about unity? I mean, isn't that important? Don't we need to unify? Yes, unity is important, but you can't have unity without truth. Truth always comes before you. You can't unite around error. Truth is important. Truth matters. <clears throat> Jude 1.3 says, Beloved, although it was very eager for me to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Faith is the body of doctrine within the New Testament. And if a person denies any of the core truths of the Gospel, he doesn't hold to the one faith, and there's no basis of unity between us and them. Bereans, we are called as Christians to contend for the faith. The body of Christian doctrine. To hold it up. To hold it high. To stand for it. And just because somebody comes along and holds the same eschatology that we hold, we can't embrace that. I'm trying not to say anything I shouldn't here, but I mean, there's just there's all kinds of weird doctrines under this umbrella of preterism. I just hit on some of the majors, but there's to, I mean, there's every belief under the sun. That's why I said if someone goes on the internet and they start looking for preterism, they're like, "Whoa, you people are whacked out." And money are, okay? And I've made the distinction many times. I am not a preterist preacher. I am a preacher whose eschatology is preterism. That's one of the doctrines of theology that I hold to. But I hold a lot of other ones that I view as much more important, like soteriology. To me, you've got to understand what it means to get saved and how you get saved. That's more important than understanding the end times. And it's also more important that you understand your Christology. You know who Christ is. You know who God is. Those things are important, people. Much more important. All right, let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your grace to us. Lord, I pray this message would be taken with the spirit in which I intended it. Lord, we have to stand against doctrinal error no matter how nice the people are that preach the doctrinal error. Help us to be kind, Lord, always to be loving always, but to stand on the truth of Your Word. Give us the courage, Lord, to stand on truth, no matter who it offends. In Your name we pray. Amen.